everyone, and welcome to the official Scotland Rugby League podcast, brought to you by McEwan's. I'm your host, James Parsons, and today we're going to be talking about some of the history of rugby league in Scotland. And I'm delighted to be joined by Scotland Rugby League historian, journalist, and author of Rugby League Bravehearts, Gavin Willisey. Thank you for coming on, Gavin. How are you getting on at the minute? Pleasure, pleasure James. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah, all things considered. Yeah, it's... Uh... Strange times, but um, I'm making the most of it. Are you keeping yourself self busy with minimal uh, rugby to write about? Uh, I'm busy. I'm busy with all sorts of work, um, and uh, yeah, just uh, enjoying trying to get through a, a huge pile of ideas and projects. Um, some rugby league related, some not. Um, but yeah, I, I can't complain. So. I gather that you're actually based down south, so it makes me wonder where your interest in rugby league first came about, and how did that lead you to being involved with Scotland Rugby League? <laughs> a good question. Yeah, I'm based uh, very south compared to Scotland. Uh, I'm in Hertfordshire, and I've lived most of my life in Hertfordshire, uh, just north of London. Um, and... Uh, I was taken to rugby league about once a year by my my dad. Uh, he's from he's from Lancashire, but from a, a not from a rugby league area, from Morecambe, which is like a football area. But all my family are up there or were, so we used to go on holiday, and um, occasionally we'd go to a to a rugby league game. And he took me to Wembley when I was about eleven, I think, my first ever match. And I, I liked rugby league, but didn't really have any access to it. Growing up in the eighties in Hertfordshire, saw saw some on TV on Saturday afternoons, but usually I was at a football match on a Saturday, so didn't see that much of of those games. Um, and the, the big turning point really was when uh, I moved into a mate's house, uh, or rather, he was running a pub, and I, I moved into the room above the pub, and he had Sky Sports in the in the late nineties, and I was working at the time at. Um, Football 365 website, and they also had Sky on in the office the whole time. So suddenly I was seeing loads of rugby league and, and it really sort of triggered uh, what I loved about it and what was attractive about it in the first place. But I think also the part of it was that I was very much a football football guy and then I was working in football. And after a while, if you're, if you're working in whatever's your passion, then I, I've, my theory is you need another passion to fill that gap. Um, so football had become my job. So rugby league became my my passion and my um, my sort of hobby, which I became rapidly obsessed by. What was it about rugby league that that you know inspired that passion? It's, it's a very good question. You know, I, I've asked myself it many times and there's, there's lots of different aspects I think one of them is it appeals very much especially now it feels well maybe not now but 10 years ago or so it felt very much like football felt when I was growing up um, much more accessible uh, the, uh, the the distance between the players and the crowd w- was something that was very attractive as in that you know you feel like um they're not something unattainable or untouchable. The, you know, the, the fact that the players would go in the bar after the game and you can speak to them 
uh, that appealed to me. I, do, I really like the, the community feel of it, um, very sort of down to earth feel. Um, so culturally, it appealed. I, think I also, as part of me, likes being being the possibly the underdog. I always I always root for the underdog in whatever it is, and uh, doing something different or being into something different. I, I never had any interest at all in rugby union because that's just purely a cultural thing. We we didn't play rugby at all at school, so I didn't have any rugby influence. The only time we pretended to be rugby players, I was doing in uh, Ray French impressions, running around pretending to be Ellery Hanley or uh, Kurt Sorensen or somebody. Um, and... Um, so that it, it was just a, a natural attraction. And then the game itself, I just, there's not many boring rugby league matches. And, you know, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of very boring football matches. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There are very, very few boring rugby, rugby league games. Uh, and anyone I've ever taken to a game, is, I've never taken anyone who said they didn't enjoy it. Yeah. So there's, there's something really accessible about the rules as well I've, I found sort of I came from a rugby union background but there was something about the slightly more simple nature of the game that it, was, it just felt I don't know purer in a sense yeah I think you know from, I've watched quite a bit of rugby union myself and I think there's times when people in the crowd don't know what the decision is that the referee's given and some players have said they don't know what the why why decisions have been given um, because the rules are so complex uh, that that never happens in league and it's just very free flowing. I think when you say to people that there's you know there's the argument that it's stop start because there's six tackles, but in fact it's not like that, is it? It, it, it just flows um, and there's yeah. nearly always something happening. And that's very attractive in any sport. And once that sort of that that draws, well, drawn you in, how did that lead you to Scotland? Now, the funniest thing is I can't remember. <laughs> I know whose fault I know whose fault it was. Uh, Kevin Rudd, um, who was the second, I think, development officer for for Scotland Rugby League. Um, or, after Graham Thompson, I believe he was. Uh, Graham, uh, sorry, Kevin took over and was very much involved in running the um, the students, Scotland students. And um, I, I interviewed him. I was basically, I was always, I was attracted early on about inter, international rugby league and, and why was it so small compared to international football, cricket, rugby union. Um, and I was doing some writing about Ireland and Scotland and Wales and doing some research. And I, I interviewed Kevin and we went out for a beer actually in London. He was, he was based in London. And we, well, we had more than one, I think. And um, we got on very well. And sooner or later, he was inviting me to come out on one of the Scotland student tours Um we went to Holland and to Italy and played Serbia out there. I went on two tours, actually, in the early 2000s. 
and uh, they just made me very welcome, made me feel part of the of the group. And from that, I became the, uh, the volunteer um, media officer, press officer, whatever you want to call it. Your your predecessor in uh, two thousand and three, and it, it just took off from there. My my first game was Serbia last year. Oh um, ah, right, okay, yeah. Sort of rocked up to do the match report and then got roped into doing the whole thing. <laughs> um, as as, uh, as Danny Kazanjian, who's now on International Rugby League, uh, very high up in that, as he once said to me, it's easier to leave the mafia than to leave uh, rugby league organisations. Once you're in as a volunteer, <laughs> <laughs> you, you've, you've, you've signed up for life. You, you get a bit of parole every now and again, but you get dragged back in. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, so I, I've done, done it for. I did it on and off um, from two thousand three to two thousand and seventeen. I stopped before the World Cup um, mm. when it. Yeah, because I I couldn't get to New Zealand um, for the World Cup, so I thought it was a good time to stop before before the World Cup. And then, well, let's see. Once you're a volunteer. You, you don't leave leave completely because so you're now the um, the historian. Yeah, I think that's just more by um, the fact that without blowing my own trumpet or anything, this is just how it happens to have turned out. I probably know more about Scottish rugby league than anyone else. Not not the domestic game, and let my let me add. I just want to yeah very clear about that. You know, I've never lived in Scotland. I've not been involved with the domestic competitions over the years um and i know lots of people who have and they know vastly more about what's happened on the ground there um but from a international team's point of view um and uh the historic nature of the you know all the all the scottish players who came south to play in england um from the sort of 1890s through to the 19 19- 70s really um then i probably know quite a lot about that leading into my 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 first first question for you um the, the scotland rugby league team was formally made in 1995 but so as you were alluding to there um i i, I saw that rugby league in scotland can trace back to around 1904 um so how did rugby league start in Scotland and why was there such a big gap before it officially formed as a team? Okay, well, there were, there were basically, there was some games, a couple of exhibition games took place um, around the turn of the century in the early 1900s and there were, there were a couple of test matches played, um, one at Hearts, uh, that, were, that were exhibition games um, I think it was Great Britain v Australia, or the the Northern Union versus Australia, if I remember right off the top of my head. Um, And then uh, all you had was basically a a trickle of Scottish rugby union players going to um, rugby league, mainly because they they wanted to get paid for playing. Uh, They were often... Um, workers in in the mills or in the the textile industry and around the borders, 
or they might have been steel workers, etc., in, in Glasgow. Um, and they had the opportunity to carry on working in their fields in Lancashire and Yorkshire towns and play rugby in front of large crowds. So, uh, you know, there, there was this, this string of players that started to go. Um, Roy Kinnear being one of the, the most famous who went down in the 20s and um, played in the, the first Challenge Cup final at Wembley in, in 1927, I think it was, um, and scored, in fact, for, in, in that game. And he's the grandfather of Rory Kinnear, the, the famous actor now. Um, and then the, the players, it, it, it increased in, I think, probably the 50s would have been the, the time when there were the most Scots playing rugby league in England. Um, the fact that there were two in the... Uh, Great Britain team that won the, the first Rugby League World Cup in 1954. Uh, David Rose played and um, Dave Valentine was captain, so the first Brits to lift a, a World Cup in any sport or any team, men's team sport, as far as I'm aware, was Dave Valentine, um, uh, who was from Hoyk, I believe. Um, but they, there were never, there was never any any rugby league actually organised in Scotland um, until a couple of schools competitions in the in the seventies and and eighties. Um, why it never became established, it's a, it's a difficult question. But you, you've got to just assume for the same reasons as it didn't become established in in other areas where rugby union was very strong. You know, it was rugby league was was banned it was a it was a sporting apartheid you played rugby league you couldn't go back to rugby union you were treated with utter contempt by the uh, the SRU and um, you know there were some absolutely horrendous stories of players who'd gone off to to play rugby league and then come back home to visit their families and and were banned from going in the clubhouse at, at various clubs and in the borders um, because they'd been seen to have betrayed their sport. I mean, it seems sounds madness now. Imagine a player changing sports and being treated uh, like a criminal for doing it. But that, that was the case for, for years and years and years. Um, and then if you ask why, how come the, there was suddenly Scotland Rugby League formed in 1994? Well, the roots to that are because of um, the Scotland students team that, that was formed in the late 80s uh, to play in the Student World Cup. Um, the team was put together of uh, mainly well, about half and half split of rugby union players um, who who, uh, who went to trials and showed that they could adapt to rugby league and rugby league players who were at universities in Scotland or who had Scottish parents and or grandparents and, and could represent Scotland. And that mixture, that idea of having a what Kevin Rudd always referred to as exiles and residents, um, and he, his policy on it was one that I think has proven to be right, that the best Scotland teams would usually have a mixture of half and half residents and exiles. So whether this be the, the amateur team or the Scotland students or the under-19s now, um, you've got that mixture of players who are born and bred in Scotland and who have learnt rugby league alongside those who've been brought up playing rugby league and have uh, 
who, who want to represent their their heritage and their families. Um, so yeah, the, the student team formed um, in the late eighties, played in the World Cup, and uh, competed in in every tournament ever since. There's never been a, a British home nations or a European Championships or a World Cup that Scotland students haven't been at, which is an incredible, incredible feat, mm. uh, longevity and commitment there. Um, and then basically that, that team evolved and in 94, uh, all those involved, like John Risman, Hector McNeil, those sort of guys got together and formed uh, the Scotland Rugby League um, in Portobello and they were up and running. And within a year, they were playing in the Emerging Nations World Cup with the first full Scotland team. Yeah, and and then sort of from that point when it's um, formed as a you know a, a senior first team, how how did the team sort of develop from that formation to really sort of emerging on the international stage and going on to qualify for their first World Cup? in 2000 uh, yeah yeah it's a good, well it's a good question because the 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 team um the team from that from 94 95 that side uh was still a mixture of the best scotland students players graham thompson being one of them um and then top pros like so you had alan tate in that team who was like a, a world-renowned star uh playing alongside student players um and that that nature of the team at the Emerging Nations World Cup in '95 that that soon evolved because other players who were professionals and were eligible wanted to play basically. And I think you know there were rules at '95 World Cup about the makeup of your team having to have a certain number of products of your domestic game. I think um, so. By by the year 2000, uh, the the team was all professional players from based in England and Australia. Um, and that team didn't actually qualify for the World Cup. They were a host nation because there were a couple of games in Scotland, so they didn't have to qualify. Um, but already in a very, very short space of time, when you look back on it, uh, in a you know, five-year period, they'd gone from there being no Scotland senior team to being one that was competing with Samoa, um and uh an island in the in the world cup um and then things uh there was a bit of a down period in the game for the next couple of years and then uh the appointment of Stephen Cormack in 2004 uh was the you know the, the next era that, that lasted um best part of 15 years yeah because um, he he only stepped down two years ago. After, after year the World, ago. Yeah, after the World Cup. Yeah, after the World yeah. Cup. So uh, a year and a half ago. Yeah. So Steve Steve did thirteen years, I think fourteen campaigns, something like that, mm. um, and qualified the uh, qualified for three World Cups, which is a uh, you know, some some achievement indeed. And as well, um, qualified for the four nations too. Um, so that's, I mean, I think for most people, that 2016 campaign stands out as 
one of the sort of more significant in, in particularly in recent history. Um, but I mean, throughout the history of the the team, um, what have been some of the standout results for you, both in terms of their importance on the pitch regarding scoreline, um, but also games that had a, a big off the pitch impact. Uh, so it's a it's an interesting question about off the off the pitch impact. Um, you know, you, you could debate long and hard, and people would know better than I would about what impact the results of the national team have on the sport in Scotland. Um, because for for a whole variety of reasons, the the most successful results really would be the 2013 World Cup getting to the quarterfinals uh, but that coincided with all the funding being slashed for for Scotland Rugby League by the RFL and and the game collapsing and having it still rebuilding now that's off off the back of what happened in 2013 so um, it, the two things don't I don't think tie together at all I think they're very very distinct I'm happy to be told otherwise but um I think, you know, like you mentioned, 2016, um, the England game in 2016, I think was a was a huge, a huge thing. Live on BBC Two, the first time we've been live on national terrestrial TV. Um, first time we'd ever played England um, at down at Coventry and to be winning. Um, I can't remember if we were still winning at half time, but we were certainly winning after about half an hour. Um, I think it was 12-18 at half-time to England. Yes. Like yeah, 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 yeah. And, and we, were, we were, I think they'd, they'd scored it not long before half-time. So mm. it, it, that was, that performance was was superb and got us a lot of respect, I think. You know, that if, if that didn't have an impact in Scotland, then not much would. Uh, and then it was followed a few days later by the incredible draw with New Zealand up in Workington. Um, we were the, the first... Uh, country that's not a tier one nation to so not England, New Zealand or Australia the first one to not be beaten um, by them um, for I think it was about 25-30 years, something like that since uh, Great Britain had lost to PNG um, but it, it was uh, an incredible achievement um, and every, you know that, that would be the that would be probably the the height when everything came together that night, um, and those who were who were in camp that week know uh, know what the the team had gone through that week. It, there were lots of strange things happening with players being injured, and uh, there the, the, there was a huge downpour, and the pitch was flooded, and the Kiwis didn't want to play on it because they thought it was the pitch wasn't suitable. Um, we were supposed to go to Workington to train, and we. We didn't. We stayed in Preston to train on a 4G pitch because the pitch at Workington was was going to be unplayable to train on. Um, and there were, I think, four of our top players were injured and didn't take part in training. Um, and yet on the night, they all played, some of them in agony. I know Danny Bruff couldn't put his heel down. He was in excruciating pain. Uh, and yet they put on a performance that will go down in history as one of one of the greats. Yeah, I remember watching it on TV at the time. Um, 
sort of how windy it was and just, just a sort of bonkers match it was in the end. It was, but and, but the strange thing was that was our third bonkers match. You know, I think it's the right phrase at Workington um, because in the twenty three uh, twenty thirteen World Cup, you know, the, another absolute classic game was the the one against Tonga, uh, where mm. we we beat Tonga by a couple of points, twenty six twenty four in an absolutely astonishing astonishing match. Huge crowd at Workington now hanging off the rafters. You know, it was it was rammed on a on a uh, I think it was a Tuesday night, bad weather. Um, Tonga had an incredible, incredible lineup, just full of NRL stars um, and players who were to become NRL stars. I remember Conrad Hurrell causing his absolute mayhem down our left, uh, down our right rather. Um, and they, I think Tonga had about four tries disallowed by the video ref. Oh, oh, correctly, of course. Um, and, and we beat them. We were, I think, we were twenty nil up at half time. It was a sensational first half performance. And we hung on to win, and then a few days later, drew thirty all with Italy at Workington. So, and that game was absolutely incredible. Uh, but the, the difference was that I think Steve McCormack managed to get us to win some tight games. Uh, that was how the team had developed. Instead of losing the tight matches, we were winning them. Um, and I think that, you know, in, in international sport, when you only play a small number of games and the coach has very little time to work with the team, there's often tiny margins. Um, so Steve had lots of tournaments where maybe we lost two out of the three games or maybe we lost all three games. And sometimes they were... All, there were a couple of close ones and there wasn't that much in it. Uh, but if you only play three games, there's no real chance to, to bounce back. Uh, but around um, 2013, for the next couple of years, the the tight games, instead of instead of losing them, we were we were winning them or drawing them, which was uh, had, had a big impact. Yeah, this was there were quite a few players that I mean, they're still in the team now, but um sort of core of the team that remained the same through that period as well. Yeah, it was it was um it was put together over a over probably the previous two or three years. Um you know players like Brett Phillips uh, and and Callum Phillips and um Ben Helliwell, uh Ben Kavanagh, Danny Addy, those sort of guys, Dave Scott, um the whole group came through in little little groups of like twos, threes, fours each each year over that. I'd say from 2010, so that by 2013, they were all in the squad for the World Cup and they were young and they were hungry. Um, and the, the experience they had at the World Cup, um, I would say, sort of overflowed, took them into the 2014 European Championships, uh, which... To say we won would be telling only one tiny part of the story, as you know. Um, it was a uh, 2014 European Championships was an extraordinary turn of events, but we ended up winning it to qualify for the Six Nation, uh, the Four Nations rather, in 2016, um, and it was pretty much um, the basis of the the 2013 World Cup team that that pushed England all the way and then drew with New Zealand. 
I mean, that, uh, you say about mem- uh, little moments. I think one one classic moment. Sometimes it's the, it's the little things that I remember. So, uh, in twenty fourteen European Championships, the, the, the winners would get to play in the Four Nations. Everybody assumed that would be France. So the first game we we hammered working um, hammered Wales up in Workington. Wales were very very below strength, a sort of second team virtually, um, very young team, and we we hammered them. And then we went to Ireland and won pretty comfortably in, in Dublin. Um, and it was all set up to play. We played France at Gala Shields on a Friday night. Um, and we capitulated. We, uh, if we'd won or drawn, we'd have won the European Championships and a place in the Four Nation. And we absolutely fell apart in the, in the first half. Um, and we got hammered i think it was 32 nil something like that half time it was just try after try after try to france and france had a had an incredible team um you know they had pretty much a, a catalan dragon lineup but tony gigo was playing theo farge jamal fakir uh garcia battieri pelissier all these guys were playing um and, and we just saw it disappearing in front of our eyes but there was one try for a for France, um, I can visualise it now. Scott away to the left from the main stand at, at Gala, and uh, Alex Hurst was playing, I think, on the opposite wing, and a, a guy broke through, and he had a free run to score from about the halfway line, and Alex Hurst ran about sixty metres diagonally to force the French player wide before he touched down. So he ended up touching down out near the near the touchline uh, because Alex had bothered, even though he knew the bloke was going to score, Alex had bothered to chase him. And that chase by Alex Hurst got us to the Four Nations because it was those points, the, the guy missed the conversion. If he'd scored that conversion, we would have missed. We would not have won the Four Nations. Ireland would have won it. Um, oh, wow. So I think, you know, little moments like that that, Give you a lot of respect for for players who uh, who didn't actually get to enjoy the the glory of the of the four nations itself, but that they there's little efforts all over the pitch that actually get you there. Yeah, sort of in the in the build up that then lead onto the onto I suppose the the bigger yeah, the games. bits that don't end up on the hi- they don't end up in the highlights, but you know the players yeah. there at the time know um, what it, what impact they that made. And so, well, you've already named quite a few players, um, and you'll have seen your fair share while while you've been involved with Scotland. And I gave you a little bit of homework to. Pick, yes, you did. Yeah. Pick a, a, your all-time Scotland thirteen. Um, yeah. So we could run through that and give us a little explanation of each player. So we start mm-hmm. with with fullback and work our way through the backs. Absolutely, yeah. I've done this. I've done a one thirteen, and I'll just say caveat for this that I've limited it to players I've seen play for Scotland. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so that's from 20, 20, uh, 2003 up to twenty nineteen, and I've worked out. I think I've seen twenty five internationals. So some people will have seen more than me, but not that many. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, the fullback and wing positions is a really, really tough one because there have been some fantastic players. I think, you know, we've, we've a very much a, a, 
imbalance in where the strengths are in Scotland over the years. But my fullback, I'm going to go for Lachlan Coote um, because I don't know how you can't really pick Lachlan Coote. So that means, uh, yeah, well, I'll tell you who will miss out in a minute. You'll find that out. So fullback Lachlan Coote. Um, shall I tell you the wingers? Yeah, should we go to the, the wingers? Well, yeah, yeah, wings first. Yeah, wings. So um, I'm going to go Matty Russell on one wing. Uh, Matty was absolutely brilliant in the 2013 World Cup at fullback. Majorly, uh, major contribution coming off our own line, um, bouncing out of tackles. I don't think he was ever tackled by the first first tackler. In the, I don't think he was put down by the first tackler in the whole tournament. It was incredible and, and carried on with that sort of form, scored against uh, England. So I'd have Matty Russell on one wing and I would have Dave Scott on the other wing. Um, I mean, Dave, you could argue Lewis Tierney might be a better player than Dave Scott, probably is. Michael Robertson scored a hat-trick in the uh, NRL Grand Final, so he must be a better player than Dave Scott. But for me, Dave Scott is everything that Scotland Rugby League is about. Uh, came through from Sterling, came through at Easter House Panthers, Played for Scotland under 16s, 18s, 19s. Um, went down to to Hull KR um, as a trialist. Got into the academy. Um, moved to Doncaster, uh, Featherstone for a bit, and basically has made his career in the Championship. And he's, he's still the only Scottish-born and bred player making his career in in England at the moment. So Dave Scott has got to be in there, and at this rate. Barring injury, Dave is going to become Scotland's most capped player at some point in the next couple of years. He's, he's already the top try scorer. Um, yep. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I think he's about fourth on the list of appearances, but sooner or later, he'll yeah. get to the top. So hard to, hard to argue with that back three. So, I mean, I might. Yeah, it's pretty good. Isn't it? So, you mentioned Matty Russell. Let's get pictures of that. The try he scored at the Rico, and yes. I've, with a three-minute video delay, I, I must have seen it ten, fifteen times, and I still haven't got a clue how that that was a, how he scored. You know, the video just, ref saw it fifteen times that night as well. It was, that was torture. Pardon <laughs> uh, me. Um, no, I'll get you to. Who's who's going inside the wingers? So who who are your okay, two centres? Inside, I haven't really thought about which way round, which partnerships this would be. But my centres, well, on the left I'll have Kane Lynette, uh, excellent in 2013 when he basically stepped off a plane and played straight away, um, played in the World Cup and and then carried that through in 2016, superb. Uh, so I have Kane and one centre on the left and. Um, on the right, uh, although Joe Wardle has been very impressive at times, he's hardly played in recent years. So I would go for Ewan Aitken for his his performances in 2016 in the Four Nations, where he was uh, he was outstanding and unfortunately was injured in 2017, and uh, we haven't seen him haven't seen him since. But hopefully next year at the World Cup, Ewan Aitken from the uh, St George Illawarra Dragons will be playing at centre for Scotland again. Again, two that are quite hard hard to argue with. Um, so then, sort of supplying 
all of those? Who, who are you having at halfback? I don't think you can go beyond the, the pairing that we had at the 2013 World Cup. Uh, Peter Wallace and Danny Brough um, at that World Cup, uh, I believe Bruffy wore seven. And, no, I think Wallace wore seven and Bruffy wore six. I'm not sure, but um, they would yeah. be my pairing. Um, that World Cup, they were they were sensational, um, and you know Danny Danny Bruff is uh, a lot's been said about him, but uh, his commitment uh, to Scotland is when he's when he's there, he is absolutely magnificent, and and year after year he turned up at the end of a long season and played in internationals that other players frankly decided that they would prefer to have a rest um, and other players when their club said we don't want you to play we want you to rest and recuperate Ruffy said I'm playing I don't care what you think I'm playing for Scotland and he did that time and time again um, so that alone would put him in there but the fact that he basically ran a lot of games by himself and he had opposition dangling on the string um, especially in his prime around 2013-2014 Ruff has got to be in there and Peter Wallace at the 2013 World Cup was just sensational he seemed to have so much time he's like a classy player of of any sport they seem to have uh, the game seems to go into slow motion when they've got the ball and that's that's what Peter Wallace was like I get it Hard to look past uh, Danny Bruff's kick against New Zealand. Sort of, you yeah, know, was it absolutely, yeah. 40 yeah. seconds from the touchline in the wind. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, you know, whilst you wouldn't want to, you, you can't assume, I think most of us thought, yeah, you'll nail this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so moving, moving into the forwards, um, yeah. let's get two props. Okay, well, two props. Uh, again, there's a bit of a bias in the around the, the era of these games, but you know this is just when Scotland were at their best. Uh, I'd have Adam Walker and Luke Douglas as my props. Mm. Uh, Luke in 2013 when he came in, it, um, obviously a hugely respected and successful NRL prop, uh, and he just applied those standards to Scotland. He was so professional. And, and determined and the standards he had were so high um, the brilliant impact on, on the other players in the team and a lovely bloke as well which helped um, took a lot of people to bring him down uh, and Adam Walker was just firebrand you know at his, at his best when he when he's fit and healthy he was just um, would, would draw in three or four players would tear through the first couple of tackles and, and offload um, and he was unplayable at times and, and he won Scotland Player of the Year um, off off the back of that a couple of years ago. So I'd have uh, Luke Douglas and Adam Walker. And who's going in between them at hooker? Well, this was the toughest one because um, I would say probably the best hookers were all there at similar time. We know Danny Addy's done a good job there in recent years, but we had for, for many years... Uh, Sport for choice in the hooker. Um, we had both the Henderson brothers, Andrew and Ian, and Ben Fisher at the 2013 World Cup. So it was, it was crazy. We had, we had three hookers who were all walked into most of the teams at the World Cup. 
Um, I'm going to go with Andrew Henderson because of the number of games he played and he, he never let Scotland down and was a, was a great leader um, and was a, was a record uh, caps winner, the most cap player for, for several years. So I'll go for Andrew Henderson. And then sort of behind that, that pretty impressive front row, um, big two second rows. Yeah, um, I'm going to go for... Uh, one sort of current player, Dale Ferguson, uh, just possibly coming towards the end of his career now. Um, Fergie's been so reliable for Scotland for years, uh, captain the team a couple of years ago. Uh, really destructive player at his peak, um, and a great bloke that that everybody liked. Everyone got on well with. Uh, you know, very different character to what he looks like. Um, and he was uh, top class, top class player. And, uh, and I remember, you know, him getting suspended and missing the New Zealand game in the World Cup quarter final in 2013, and being absolutely devastated um, by that. And I think, you know, that that summed up what playing for Scotland meant for him. Uh, he he would only not only not let you down, but he'd also cause carnage in the opposition as well. So Dale Ferguson. Yeah. And then the other one who uh, might be a, a bit more of a surprise, uh, I've gone for Duncan McGillivray, who um, played in the, uh, the the late 2000s, um, really respected NRL player, came over, uh, did extremely well for Wakefield um, and was a class above most of the other Scotland players at the time and won player of the year uh, and was just a, a real class act, Duncan McGillivray. Yeah, and um, so Dale Dale also won, uh, well, three years after, um, which also says quite a lot about Dale that he got Player of the Year in 2010, and he's the captain in 2020. Um, yes. Again, sort of fairly difficult to argue with the second row as well. Um, and finally, who have got number 13? At 13, I've got James Bell. Uh I think most people knew nothing about James Bell when he first played for Scotland. I didn't. I'd never seen him play before. Um, I'd only heard of him once he was on Scotland's radar. Um, but I just love watching him play. I think, you know, he, he, he tears through people. He's he's very, very explosive um, and tough as old boots. You know, it really is hard as nails much. I think he, he's... Pound for pound, you know, he's he's one tough fella, uh, and I think he'll play a major role at the World Cup next year. I expect playing for Toulouse at the moment um, this this season. If, if this season gets back on track, then potential for him to be in Super League next season and finish next season at the World Cup. Yeah, because he, he's he's one of those that he, he, every time I've seen him, he just seems to get an offload that. Isn't there? Um, so you know he's got four players on him, and the ball pops out. <laughs> yes, exactly. St- and you think, who is that? Oh, it's James Bell. And, you know, yeah. and it, 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 he, um, it, he grabs your attention. I think as a player, it's a it's a pretty pretty formidable thirteen there. It's all right. Um, isn't it? It's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah. I, f- I fancy the chances. But and just as a ex- extra challenge. Um, so obviously, the a match day squad is 
17 men. Um, but I'd like to name the bench from from SRL opposition players who've impressed you. Um, yeah. Sort of dream picks, if you like, if you could turn around and make Jason Tamalolo Scottish yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, um, yeah, I'm going to go in, in reverse order. So my bench would be, um, this one is not a glamorous player, uh, but it's just somebody who caused Scotland problems so often. Um, we've, we've got a pretty terrible record against uh, Ireland until reasonably recently. And often the reason for that was Liam Finn. Um, you know, he, he's the Danny Brough of Ireland. He played for years and years and years, was captain for most of that time and was running the game um, for Ireland uh, from half back. So I would say, and kicking everything. I think Liam Liam Finn, there have been many a time, I should think, where Steve McCormack would have liked to have had Bruffy and Finn together rather than Finn uh, causing his all sorts of issues to the other side. So I'd go Liam Finn. Um, and then uh, you just mentioned him, Jason Tarmalolo, uh, played against Scotland as a young man for Tonga in 2013 up in Workington on the beating side. Um, and then was... Four years later, a world superstar when he uh, was in the in the team that absolutely destroyed uh, Scotland in in Cairns. I was I was there at that game, um, and it, it it wasn't wasn't pretty um, as you can imagine. That um, he was he was outstanding in a in a star studded Tonga team. Uh, then I'd go for uh, Sonny Will Williams. Think he'd be okay. Uh, he was um, he was in the uh, New Zealand team that beat us in the, the World Cup quarterfinals in 2013. Uh, didn't have a huge impact on the game necessarily. Uh, you wouldn't have picked him out particularly. However, um, I, because he was so famous, I was watching him and he was so quick off a defensive line. Everything he did, he did perfectly and quicker than nearly everyone else on the pitch. So uh, I think Sonny Bill would have done us a few favours if he'd been in in blue. Um, and then my final pick off the bench, not sure if he'd get in ahead of Lock and Coop, but I'd have James Tedesco. Uh, best player in the world at the moment. And uh, Tedesco was played at centre when he played against Scotland in 2013 up at Workington in that, that crazy game. Um, in those days, he was he was young up-and-coming player at West Tigers, I think. Um, not a standout in 2013, but certainly a standout in 2019. Um, yeah. I, th- I think that bringing those four on, we'd, uh, we'd, we'd look pretty strong. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there'd be many teams that would fancy playing that 17. <laughs> No, I, I, I think that, that I think we'd we'd have a really good shout of the World Cup semi-finals with that lineup. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll 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 email Tamalolo and just ask if he's got a Scottish grand. Maybe maybe a great grand. <laughs> Sonny Bill Williams sounds more like he would. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and just before I, I let you go, um, if you had to pick one moment that's been your best moment involved with Scotland Rugby League could be a, a game or small moments that happened? Um, 
one moment is is very hard. I do remember. I think beat maybe beating beating Tonga at Workington. That that was pretty magical that night. Um, and drawing with New Zealand, the same place. You know, it's strange that a small ground in Cumbria should feel so special. But they they were both absolute magic moments. Um, I just remember little things you remember. I remember coming down the steps at half time against Tonga. Um, and uh, as I say, I think was it 20 nil or something or 20 points to four, something like that. And and just raising my eyebrows at a colleague in the press box who, as if to say, blimey, is this really happening? You know, are we, we going to beat Tonga <laughs> with uh, Tal Malolo and Willie Manu and, uh, you know, Kite and T- Daniel Tupu and people like that playing for him. Um, so that that was extremely special. And then then the excitement of drawing with New Zealand, that's, that was hard to beat. But it was just a privilege. The whole, to be involved the whole time was a privilege. And I met some fantastic people who are friends for life. And um, I know that I've been extremely uh, lucky and honoured to have been to have been part of something really special. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll hopefully see you at the next World Cup because I'm sure you will struggle to keep away. You will. You'll see me. Don't worry. I, I was in. Uh, I was at uh, Scholars for the game against game against Greece, and it was nice to to be there when when the qualification was sealed as well. So that was great. Mm. And that was quite a good game as well. That was a great game, yeah. Well, thank you so much for for this. Um, that's been re- really, really interesting. Um, and I hope you managed to stay safe with everything that's going on. Thank you very much, James. Yeah, and same to you and uh, and to everyone listening, all the people in Scotland Rugby League. I'll uh, look forward to seeing people and, and hearing about everything being back up and running in uh, a month or two's time, hopefully. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Next week we'll be talking to last year's Under-19 Player of the Season, Connor Terrell, and first team of Murray Mitchell. To stay up to date with everything Scotland Rugby League, keep an eye on our social media at ScotlandRL, and stay home, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.